And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. Today's guest is Sean Weed. Sean had a near-death experience where he went to hell, and today we're going to learn about it. Sean, thank you so much for your time, and welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I really appreciate you allowing me to be on your show. Well, I really appreciate you being here because without you and guests like you, there is no show. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) And on that note, um, the audience loves to hear about near-death experiences. So if you don't mind, can we start on the day that yours happened? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, God knowing that I'm really terrible with dates and names, um, he made it easy for her to remember and the, the way that I remember it is four, four, four. This actually happened on April the 4th of 1994. So for me, this was almost roughly about 30 years ago. Um, but to be honest with you, I mean, I can remember it like it was yesterday. A lot of people, uh, and I've heard people say this, you know, maybe the thing that happened to you was a, a dream or something like that. Maybe it was, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, I can't remember what I ate for breakfast two days ago, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, you know, it's like this, this is one of those things that when it happens to you, you just, it, it's, it's seared into your memory. You know, it's, it's like a hard drive that's just written. and can't be rewritten, you know, but, uh, that's, that's when it happened. And then when it, when it happened, what I was, uh, a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps. Hmm. We were uh, currently at a uh, a place that's not very far from L.A. from where I'm at right now. It's a place called 29 Palms, California. Of course, we as Marines used to call it 29 Stumps. Hmm. It was out in the middle of nowhere. It's desert. And, of course, we were going out there for desert training. Um, and out in the middle of nowhere, even further than, you know, 29 Palms being out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the desert is this tiny little camp called Camp Wilson. And um, that's where our base of operations would be. Every time we came into uh, 29 Palms, we would go out to, we would stay at Camp Wilson because we didn't want to interfere with the base's regular activities. You know, we didn't want to intermingle East Coast Marines with West Coast Marines. You know, so we were coming out there to train on their base and we stayed out of their way. So they had a, place for us to stay out in the middle of the desert and that was camp wilson um during this time uh as artillery we would train for three weeks go through a one-week respite and uh during that uh week uh the infantry unit that had been training with us would pack up and leave and go back to North Carolina, and then they would be replaced by another unit that would come out. And uh, then we'd re-kick off training again for another three weeks. So we were roughly out there for two months um, during combined arm exercise as artillery. So during that uh, changeover process, um, the artillery Marines wouldn't have anything to do because, you know, it was a two-day process for them to load up and then another two-day process for the new unit to get there you know, to get in and get settled. Um, so they would tell us, okay, well, during this week, we're not going to have anything to do. So we clean the gear. And then they would tell us, okay, we've put together two packages. 
either you can go to uh, Disney World, I think it is, or Disneyland, whatever it is over here. I didn't, I didn't go. Uh, or you can go to Vegas for a couple of days. And so they put together two packages for the, the Marines that were staying here. And if you had the money, you went. And if you didn't, you just stayed. And I didn't have the money. So I just stayed. And um, I was um, I was in um, – they have these new steel containers out there with concrete bottoms that are built like uh, uh, domes with a, that are kind of accordion-shaped, you know, because they're supposed to – taking a great deal of heat and expand, you know, so that's why they're built like accordions so they can, you know, more or less uh, contract, you know, as they're releasing heat, you know, so they're built to expand and contract with the, you know, receiving and releasing of heat. But before they had that, they had A-frames, which were basically just long, like chicken barns. Uh, with a very sharp, sharp slope roof, like 45-degree like slope. And uh, the, the roofs would come down to where they almost touched the ground, and, of course, that was all desert. I mean, they had no concrete base for this. It was just dirt, you know, sand. So we would move into these uh, A-frames, and that's what we stayed in. They're all torn down now. They're, like I said, they have these connexes now, these steel connexes with uh, – with, you know, concrete bottoms that you can actually sweep out. We didn't have that. We had more or less like chicken huts with <laughs> straight dirt. And uh, three of my friends, we were hanging out inside there. And uh, someone, one of the guys had tied a 13-knot noose and had hung it from the rafters of the ceiling. And, of course, nobody really cared. Everybody just went around it. I mean, we, you don't throw away rope because that's what you tie up the your stuff into the vehicles with. So you keep all the rope and you just throw it into a corner, you know, of the A-frame. And then eventually people get bored with it and start making stuff out of it. Someone just made a 13-knot noose and nobody really cared because it's not like one of those cowboy ropes that are waxed and, you know, slide real easy. You know, they're stiffened and waxed and, you know, you you can't rope anything or anyone with this. I mean, once you make a 13-knot noose, it's not moving. And they had hung it from the ceiling, and it almost stretched down to where it touched the floor. So, I mean, it was like the noose itself was roughly about this big around. I mean, you could fit your body into it, and it wouldn't move. It wouldn't slide up, wouldn't slide down. It was just stuck in a big, fat circle and roughly hung about a foot off the ground. So, I mean, they weren't worrying about anybody hanging themselves with it or anything like that. Otherwise, they probably would have taken it down if they would have considered it to be a, a danger any, to anyone. But um, um, we were looking through a friend of mine's photos. He was in S2 Intelligence. Uh, his name was Corporal Laycock, Corporal Jason Laycock. And um, he had taken, he had gotten up to the impact zone and had taken uh, some really wild photos of the impacts. Like I said, it's combined arm exercise, which we, you roughly have three units attacking a single point at a single time. You have art, you have artillery units, which are shooting suppression and uh, for uh, infantry units, which are attacking on the ground. And then uh, you also have air, you know, fixed wing aircraft jets coming in and dropping bombs. 
you know, so we would do what was called a front door, back door. We would shoot to suppress the enemy. The the infantry would come in and start attacking. And then um, the at that time, the, the, the air would come in, drop their bombs, and then the infantry is regressing, and we would shoot the back door to keep the enemy's head down, you know, while, the, while our infantry is regressing. So it was all, you know, just a... And he got up there and he got some wild, crazy photos. He wasn't supposed to be up there with the infantry. And he was actually on the interior of the infantry. In other words, he could have gotten hit. It was live fire. You know, if he was in the wrong place, of course, he knew where every unit was. If there was anyone out of place, he could have died. You know, but he was what we call the inside the buffer zone, which he wasn't supposed to be there. But since uh, he, he, the only person that was over him, was a naval lieutenant. He basically bossed him around because the naval lieutenant didn't know his job. <laughs> you know, we'll put it like that. And uh, you know, so uh, he relied heavily on the the corporal, and the corporal was, uh, despite all the jokes you can you know use for intelligence, this guy was was really smart. I mean, he was well above a 150, 160 in IQ. I mean, I, I battled this guy uh, with, uh, you know, in a simulation one time. He used, uh, I used American artillery, he used Russian artillery, and he spanked me. You know, and I've been doing this, you know, I, I did, I was in the Marine Corps for 13 years, you know. Um, but, you know, it was like at the end, I just started going ballistic and wild and started using crazy maneuvers and, you know, because I was, I was, you know, once you use up all everything that, you know, you tend to just, you know, you know, uh, wing it mm-hmm. <laughs> as they say. And I was winging it and I was giving them, you know, what for <laughs> I was giving them hell, I guess you could say. And, uh, but, uh, he, he just, uh, he was too fast, too light, too mobile. I mean, he just knew where I was. I had no clue where he was. And it was just like fighting the shadow in the dark, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he spanked me up one side and down the other, but it was just like, um, just incredibly intelligent. But what he did was phenomenally dumb, uh, getting up there and taking those photos, but we we're looking at the photos. And he only had at that time, it was like I said, 1994, but they didn't have many digital cameras and he didn't have one. We had those little, you know, pocket ones that you buy that have like 30 photos already loaded up in it. And then, you know, you put the batteries in it and then wind it and then start taking your pictures, click, 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 click. Once you get down to 30, you know, it automatically rewinds, you know, and he was out to like 28. He had like three photos left and we're like, you know, dude, let's get these, you know, cause the photo place was just right, uh, you know, like 500 meters from where we were. He could have gotten them done, but he didn't want to waste the last three photos. We're like, dude, really? For three photos, you're not going to have this, you know, you know, these new pictures done? I was like, come on, let's get rid of this stuff. You know, get rid of these th- three photos. Just take stupid pictures or whatever. So we did one of those buddy photos where you're leading on each other. Mm-hmm. You know, he took a picture of his rack because he, he he came from those one of those white, you know, silver spoon, white bread, you know, rich families. And he wanted to show his uh, family the squalor which we lived in, you know, because we're sleeping on these green cots in the sand, you know. And uh, he took another picture underneath his rack of everything that was, like, laid out and whatnot. 
And then he only had one photo left, and he's like, I'm going to make this a good one. And I'm like, and I'm like, okay, well, fine, whatever. Just uh, click a picture of the sky. I don't care. And he's like, oh, no, I got a far better idea. I'm like, well, okay, what? He's like, have you ever seen those photos where people are like, you know, holding the sun in their hand, you know, or holding up the the this the roof or the you know trying to hold up the Leaning Tower of Pisa or something like that, you know, one of those trick photos. And I was like, yeah, I've seen those. And he's like, well, I got one. He goes, why don't you go over there, stick your head in that noose, and then I'm going to take a picture from your waist up, and that way they can't see that you're not really hanging, you know, that, you know, they won't see that you're just kneeling down on the ground. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, whatever. I mean, as long as whatever, I want to see these new photos because the last, you know, his last set of photos were just crazy, you know, and we were both like egging him on, like, you know, come on, let's get this done. And he's like, okay. So I go over there and I stick my head in the noose and I'm like, you know, the thing's like the, the thing, it comes underneath my neck and it's coming up way above my head and up like this, you know, and you can see it coming up like this out of the photo. So he's just like, ah, that's not good enough. You know, but at least he didn't say that out loud, but he wanted it a better photo. And um, he, uh, you know, because that wasn't going to fool anybody. You know, when you can see the rope coming underneath your neck and then up like a set of horns. Right. You know, so uh, he uh, he whispers into the other corporal's ear that was there. Cause there was, like I said, there was three of us in the room. His name was uh, Corporal Toby Page. He was in uh, S1 administration. He whispers in his ear and he's like, no, nah, that's not the way that it works. Bye bye, you fly. Which is, you know, what, what Marines do whenever you're out of money. If you're out of money, you go to someone who has money and say, hey, I'll go get something for you. I'll be, go be your gopher if you'll allow me to buy something. You know, so he's like, that's not the way it works. Fly by you, fly. He reaches in his pocket. Uh, you know, Corporal Lakehart reaches in the po- pocket, pulls out a $10 bill and hands it to uh, Corporal Tubman Page and says, go. And so he runs out the back door. He goes, okay, back to the picture. And he goes, okay, this is what I want you to do. Okay, I want you to kneel down and put a little bit of tension on that rope so that they, you know, people can see it. And he's talking really fast. And the reason why he's talking fast is because he's uh, the, the he's like, close your eyes. Dang, you know, hang your, hang your head off to the side a little bit. You know, stick out your tongue. And, you know, he's giving me all these instructions back to back real fast. And what he's really doing is using his voice to mask the footsteps sneaking up behind me. Because what he told Corporal Toby Page was, is go around behind him and snatch the, the rope down around his neck. And uh, these guys, they've seen me pick up a trailer that had 500 pounds at the hitch. You know, it probably was loaded with like 3,000 pounds with the gear and 500 pounds at the hitch. They've seen me pick up stuff like that and spin it around by myself. You know, so they, you know, they, which would normally take two or three men to do. I mean, uh, they were thinking, okay, this this is, you know, if, if this gets slammed down around his neck, no problem. He'll be able to get out of it easy, you know. So he sneaks up behind me, and as I just had exhaled, he slams this rope down around my neck. Um, and, of course, both of them are, you know, they're laughing their butts off at this point because I'm like a fish out of water. I was like, oh. 
You know, I stand up and this rope is choking me, but it's dangling down and then going back up to the ceiling. You know, <laughs> and uh, and they're, they're just laughing like, come on, come on, you know, you can get out of it, you can get out of it. I'm like, okay, and I reach up there, and I, I mean, it was so tight that I had actually scratched my neck just trying to stick one finger in the noose, and of course, you stick one finger in, and it tightens down more, and this thing's, like, got me, like, I mean, it felt like Shaquille O'Neal had his hands wrapped around my neck, and was just squeezing as hard as he could, and I, I scratched my neck just to get one finger in there, and I'm thinking one finger ought to be enough, so I grabbed the knot, and I'm pulling, but I'm pulling like this. The problem is with the 13 knot noose is it comes down, loops, then it comes back up to the knot. In other words, at the neck, there's an L shape. It comes around the neck and then up. So if you want this to come loose, you can't pull like this. You have to pull like this. And that's after straightening it out. So in other words, you have to cock your neck fully to the side like that until it straightens out and then pull like this. That's why nobody ever escapes from a 13-knot noose. They always want to grab it like this and then pull because that's what seems natural. But you don't get out from a 13-knot noose like that. Hmm. You literally have to turn sideways and then pull up. And that's the only way you can get out of that knot. Of course, I didn't know that. I had never sat there and said, let me figure out how this 13-knot noose works. I didn't even know how to tie one, you know. But I grabbed it, and I pulled with all my might. And it didn't budge, not even a centimeter. And so I said, okay, I'm running out of time. Let me stick another finger in there because I just don't have the strength, you know, because I had already pulled, and my fingers went, okay, not enough. Let me stick another, you know, so I scratched it. My neck again, I had two scratch marks on my neck coming down right here. I scratched my you know, neck again, just getting another thing in there. And of course, it was even tighter, so my head's even turning more purple than it already was. And so I grab it, and I'm thinking to myself, I have seconds left. And I've been a swimmer all my life. I know how to hold my breath for long periods of time. I mean, I'm one of those guys that can hold my breath for four minutes, no problem. You know, and I grab this thing, and I'm thinking to myself, I have seconds left. I know it. So I grabbed it, and I was like, this is it. I only got one shot. And so I really concentrated, and I pulled with all my might, and I felt something give way. And I fell forward. And then the guys were looking at me, they're like, ah. And they, you know, the ones, you know, once like, ah, you know, just, you know, whatever. And other ones like, he goes, now that's a good picture. And he kneels down and takes the last photo. And I'm just standing there like, what, what's a good picture? You know, all I did was fall forward. I escaped. Big deal. You know, I'm just standing here. What's the, you know, what's the big hoo-ha? Why is that a good picture? And I just, I paid no never mind to it. You know, I called him a few names like, you, you know, you son of a meet, 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 meet. Imagine the beeps going on right now, you know. And then I went over and I sat down next to him. And of course, he's just like he's, you know, messing with the with the camera. And uh, I think he's at this time he was sitting down. He was taking off a roll of film. And um, um, the uh, little guy goes, "Oh, here's your ten bucks." And you know, he hands it back to him. Opens up, he sets the camera to roll down, puts a 
10 bucks in the back in his wallet. And he reaches underneath his cot and then he pulls out a brown paper bag, which had a white AFIS bag, a white plastic bag on the interior of it, which he had gotten, which was full of what we call gee dunk, which is, you know, everything that you can possibly imagine. This guy worked out in the gym constantly since he was an S1 and he had every fuel you could possibly imagine there, but it was all bad stuff, you know, like Twinkies and Ho-Hos and Ding-Dongs and Gatorades and stuff like that. So it was stuff that would, you know, refill your electrolytes, but stuff that would just give you mad energy and then burn out, you know, just sugar rushes. That's, that's, that's pretty much all you had in that bag. You didn't really have anything good for you other than creatine, you know? So, um, I, I lean forward and I look into his bag and I'm like, Oh, come on, man. You didn't even need, you know, anything. You already had a bag full, you know. So, I, th- you know, of course, the, the, the ruse had worked. I thought he was going out the back door to, to, uh, to um, you know, go grab some Twinkies and whatnot. You know, some Coke, some pizza maybe or something. You know, nope. He just went around the building, snuck in the back door, and then slammed this rope down around my neck. But he already had everything he ever needed in that bag, so I'm like, man, you, you know, you bunch of sorry, beep, 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 beep. you know, I'm letting him fly, and uh, I look over there, and then he's like, man, do you remember the last time I came back from Tex? And he's like, yeah, tell us about it. And he's like, because you know, S one administration hardly they're they're paper pushers. They don't hardly ever go to the field. The only time they do the field is major field ops like Tex. If we're like leaving with everything and everyone, they have to go too. But if we're like doing a backyard fill it up, they don't go. They stay in the rear with the gear doing paperwork. You know, so he's like, yeah, I went out to Club 108 and I had on my tuxedo and these bare shoes, you know, the one with the little white claws. And I slid across the dance floor and I gave my girlfriend a dozen roses. You know, and we're just like, uh, I'm listening to this story like this, this story again. It's like he's got the one story. You know, so I'm listening to him tell the story, and the whole time Jason Laycock is just pestering him for one of his, you know, for one of his uh, ho hos. And he's like, "Hey, man, give me a bite." And he's like, he's telling his story, and he's like, he's like, he's like, mm, nom nom nom. He's just making it like it was the best ho ho in the stinking world. You know, while he's telling this story. In other words, they're agitating each other. You know, one who wants the ho-ho, another one who's acting like it's the best thing since melted cheese. You know, and they're going back and forth, and he's telling his story, and he finally finishes his story, which takes about five minutes. And uh, he looks, you know, and the, and the whole time he's telling this story, this five minutes, three times he does this number. He looks, leans to the side, and he, he looks like he's looking past me. You know, look like he's looking around me because I'm sitting there right with him. And uh, leans back up, continues the story. Halfway done, fully done. And as the third time he leans over, he goes, I don't think he's playing. And I'm like, what the heck's he talking about? So I turn around and look, and so does Corporal Laycock. And there's my body hanging from the noose. So when I said I felt something give way, that was my soul coming out of my body. Something did give way, but it wasn't that noose. It wasn't that knot. I had fallen forward out of my body, 
and stumbled forward out of my body. My body just dropped and I stumbled forward out of it. And because I never turned around to see my body hanging from the news, I never knew I was dead. Mm. And of course, because I had popped up out of my body, now I'm a spirit. They can't see me. They can't hear me. And I'm just sitting there right with them the whole time, listening to their story. And they had not a clue that I was there. So while he's leaning over, he's not, um, he was seeing through me. You know, he wasn't seeing around me. He was seeing through me. And I was just like, uh, so when I turned around and I see my body hanging there, I immediately stood up. I was like, whoa, what the heck? You know, I need glasses. And if I don't have my glasses, I can't see the long distances. And my body was about 30 feet away. But even without glasses, I could still see that this was me. You know, and I stand up and I'm like, you know, because I turn around and I was like, whoa. And I stand up and I'm like, what the heck? And I'm standing there looking at my body. And then I look down at my hands, you know, like, how can I be there and here at the same time? So I looked down at my hands and I realized if I concentrated, I could see through my hands and see the sand on the ground. And I was like, but no, wait a minute, because I had on my green T-shirt, my Marine Corps green T-shirt, OD green. And I pulled out my dog tags and there are my dog tags hanging there, you know, making that little jingling sound. And I put them back. I'm like, what the heck? You know, here I am wearing all my same stuff. And there I am wearing all my same stuff. You know, there's my body with a pair of dog tags. And here I am in a body with a pair of dog tags mm-hmm. and the same green shirt and the same camouflage, the same black boots and, the you know, the same tan web belt. And I'm like, what's going on? You know, and uh, <laughs> he uh, so he runs over there and he uh, he runs right past me and grabs my body and picks up on it. And um, the other one, you know, just to shorten it, uh, shorten everything down. I mean, I'm I'm taking everything and trying to condense it here, Mm -hmm. but the one grabs my body, the, 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 the skinny one who's an intelligence, uh, Corporal Jason Laycock, he's all about a hundred pounds soaking wet. You know, with a flat jacket on and a keg of beer on his back. You know? I mean, this guy's super skinny, super small, and he's the one that grabs my 200-pound frame and picks up on it. And I'm thinking to myself, the, the the guy who works out in the gym every day, that should have been him doing that. But I'm glad it worked out the way that it did because uh, the guy who, Corporal Toby Page, the guy who got the noose off my neck, um, off, off my body's neck, I was just standing there watching him struggle with it. You know, um, I'm standing there right beside him in spirit form, I guess you'd call it, and watching them struggle with my body. And I'm just thinking to myself, it should be the other way around. I mean, the strong one should be picking it up while the weak one's taking the noose off. But, I, you know, it didn't even occur to me that if I couldn't get that noose off my neck, what's, you know, the, the weak one going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, the other one could hold my body up for a good long time, but the other one would never get the rope off without a knife. You know, so uh, the weak one picks my body up and he's like, get over here and get this off his neck. You know, and so the strong one comes over there and he does the same thing I does. I mean, I did. He stuffed a finger in there and realized it wasn't enough. So he stuffed three and he got three fingers in, into that noose, you know, because his hands were smaller than mine. I could only get two fingers. He got three. 
Because um, I'm like 6'1", 300 pounds. I'm not a small guy, you know. And this guy, he's like 5'8", 250, but it's all muscle, you know. So, I mean, just built like Sylvester Stallone. Um, he grabs the knot and he pulls on it. And the other guy, he's pulling on it, but it's not budging. So the other guy like flops my head over to the other side to see what he's doing. He's like, straighten out the knot, dum dum. You know, and so he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, make it go up and down. So they had my neck already cocked over to the side. So he like pulls it up like this and then does it again. He pulls with all the strength and he gets it to move like half an inch, which was enough to get all of his fingers in there. And then he gave it one final jerk and bam. I mean, it moved like five or six inches and they were able to get the, the noose off my head. And so they dragged my body over to my cot and they throw it on the cot and they're like, the ones going, these ones like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? We got to tell somebody. And the other one's like, shut up. I'm thinking, you know, because if anyone could have gotten out of that kind of situation to explain a dead body, it would have been the smart one. So the smart one was like, you know, shut up. I'm thinking the other one's freaking out, you know, um, because they had realized uh, while that my, while my body was hanging there that, Rick and Mortis had already started setting in. My uh, my extremities were blue. My lips were blue, nose, eyelids blue, ears blue. You know, they had figured out I was way past the point of resuscitation. So they didn't even try. They had thrown my body on the bed and were like, what are we going to tell? You know, oh, my God. We're, you know, freaking out and just, we got to go tell somebody. He's like, shut up. You know, and... uh it was at this time I thought, okay, well, my body's not moving around. So I actually tried to get into my body while they were struggling with it, and it just felt like someone just re- reared back from, you know, fist in Texas and just popped me one right in the forehead. I felt vertigo, you know, just dizziness. I tried to get into my body to stand up and help them, to help the weak one, and, yeah, that was not a good idea. I mean, it just felt like someone had – you know, if you ever been punched in the kidney, that's what it felt like. You have all the strength and all of a sudden, dead battery, you know, and I stumbled backwards and I was like, holy cow, let me wait until they get my, you know, get my body out of this noose and let down and it's still, and then I'll try to get in. And so when they laid my body down, I tried to get into my body at that point. So I, and there was no vertigo, no dizziness, no you know, draining of energy or anything like that. So I was like, okay, this is safe. You know, so I put my, you know, I saw how my body was laying back on the rack and, you know, my feet, you know, my, my knees were hanging off and my feet were touching the ground, you know, so it was kind of like this, feet touching the ground and my body's laying back like this onto the rack. And um, I'm like, okay. So I put my foot inside my foot, and my other foot inside my other foot and see how I'm laying and, I lean back into my body. I lay back into my body, expecting them to just pop right up. Uh, problem: there have been no blood circulating in my body for like five minutes. And if you're ever been in class and like had your foot fall asleep, or been laying in bed and had your arm fall asleep, you know exactly what I mean when ever I say you can't move it; it's dead. You know. So, uh, yeah, that, that was not happening. And if I, you know, of course, everything in retrospect, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, I, 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 I wouldn't have even been thinking that. Yeah, I'm just going to pop, hop right in and 
pop right up, you know, but like, yeah, I got you guys, mm-hmm. you know, you know, that kind of thing, you know, cause that's kind of guy I was, you know, I was a happy go lucky, you know, easily amused, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> um, you know, intelligent, but easily amused, <laughs> you know? So, uh, I was just going to hop back in my body and pop right back up. Not what happened. As soon as I laid back down in my body, I'm immediately standing back up, but in the middle of this darkness, I'm in complete, I'm in a complete void. And I look around and I'm looking around for anything. And at first I'm like, Whoa, what the heck? Where am I? And I'm in this dark void. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, uh, well, I don't know where I am, but wait a minute, there's nothing here. There was no light, no wind, no sound, no nothing. And I'm like, well, there can't be nothing. I'm standing on something. And I look down, and uh, imagine glass without a reflection, okay, or hardened air. I know that's kind of hard to imagine, and a visible force field. You know, I'm standing on a platform that I can see through, but there's, uh, but it's as hard as stone, as hard as a rock. And I'm like, okay, this is not okay. I don't understand what's going on. Okay. But there's a floor underneath me and I'm going to start thinking, okay, well, maybe if there's a floor, maybe there's a ceiling. So I looked up and I went to reach my hand up. And as I'm reaching my hand up, to see if there's a ceiling, maybe it's something I can touch above me. <sighs> this never comes out well. I touched it without physically touching it with my hand. It's like my consciousness expanded up, and I knew that the ceiling was there 14 feet above me, even though I couldn't see it, even though it was invisible. I knew exactly how high it was. It was exactly 14 feet above me. And I touched it without touching. I touched it mentally. And I pulled my hand back down because it shocked me. It surprised me. I was like, what the heck was that? You know, I, you know, I was like, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, what the heck was that? You know, and I'm like, well, I don't understand that either. What, what the heck just happened there? I touched it without touching it. But I know that it's there. Just like I know this, there's something beneath my feet, even though I can't see it. So there's a floor. And there's a ceiling. Ceilings don't hold themselves up. There's got to be a wall or a window or some way out of here. So I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to go in any general direction. It's like being out in space. You know what I'm saying? Which way is a good way to go? That way. Anyway. You know? Mm-hmm. Kind of like Captain Kirk. Which way are we going? Yeah, that way. <laughs> you know? What does it matter? You're out in the middle of nowhere. Just go. You know, so I'm thinking to myself, okay, this direction is as good a direction as any. And I picked up my foot to go step in that direction. And my whole body, being in spirit form, stretched like a rubber band. It just went and started stretching out. My back foot was still in place. But my whole body is stretching forward like a rubber band. And I went about one football field, two football fields, three football fields. And then I started realizing maybe there's nothing in front of me. Maybe if I turn, so I started pivoting my back foot as I'm stretching out. And I started turning and it's still stretching out, going further and further and further until I was almost in a complete circle. And I realized 
I'm in between two parallel planes. So I pulled my foot back and I set it down in front of me. And all that took place in a matter of one or two seconds. You know, where I literally stretched out and then spun. And then I realized I'm in between two parallel planes. I'm trapped here. There is no way out. And then as soon as I thought that, I was snatched up off my feet. And I feel this, and I'm just, I'm, I'm leaning back like this. My feet are out in front of me, popping. Just, you know, my legs, my legs and feet are just popping, like in the wind. And I feel this, I'm leaning back, my feet are out in front of me, popping. And I feel this crushing sensation coming from my left shoulder. So I look down like, oh my God, what has a hold to me? And I see these huge red fingers, they're red and black coming down below my chest and this it was even hard to get my hand my head to look over in this direction i tried to look but this hand was about this thick okay and it was like leaning against a four by four block you know what i'm saying you got a four by four block just sitting there you can't move your head like that so i kind of like just look down like this, you know, because I tried to turn my head and it, it wasn't turning because I was hitting the side of this thing's hand, you know? And um, so I kind of just like look down and I see these fingers are huge. And they're long. And I'm just thinking to myself, what in the crapola has a hold of me? So I, I'm, like I said, I was already leaning back. So I just turned my head up like this, just, you know, turn back over the other side. And, of course, there was nothing, no hand over here, so I could turn my head all the way. And I saw what had a hold to me. And it was a big, big doesn't describe it. It was a red and black 13-foot-tall demon. And it had a hold to me, and it was carrying me somewhere. And it was moving at a very, very rapid pace. And it had me by one hand. It had picked me up with one hand. It had put, picked my 220-pound frame up with one hand like I was a little two-year-old child. And was crushing my left shoulder because it didn't care anything for... I mean, when you pick up a child up, you pick up a child underneath his arms like this. You don't grab it by the shoulder and then snatch it up off the ground. You could because a two-year-old only weighs 20 pounds. But you would have to dig your hands into their shoulder and their chest, and that's what it was doing to me. It, it grabbed a hold of me and was digging its hands into me, its fingers into me, and just crushing my left shoulder. And I was in just huge amount of pain. And I looked over my shoulder and I saw its face for like a grand a second, like a whopping one second. And I looked away and I was just like, Oh my God. I was like, that thing is effing huge. And it's got a hold to me and there's no way I can get away. And just to, to, to describe the demon to you, um, there was, other than being just red and black in general color, um, it, its 
face was humanoid in shape, just like ours, only with no hair, no beard, no mustache, no hair on its head, no eyebrows, just completely devoid of hair, just red and black skin. Um, its teeth were pearly white. I mean, just glistening white, uh, almost like a like a veneer. You know, like the actors get this veneer, you know, over their teeth, uh, like that. The only difference was is between its teeth and our teeth was right here where we had these canines. It had two tusks coming up out of its mouth and overlapping its lip like this. Mm. Its nose was flat like this and almost as wide as its mouth. Um, its eyes were a yellow where ours are white. Where ours are white, it was, was yellow. And um, on the iris, you know, the pupils black, and then the iris, which is can be like blue or green or brown, its was gold, and it was not round like ours. It was diamond-shaped like a snake or a cat. But it was pure gold on yellow. And um, like I said, glistening white teeth, two tusks, flat nose, and just no hair. And when I looked at this thing, I just, it, it scared the bejesus out of me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, at, at, at as big as I am, you know, with my shoes on, I'm 6'2". You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm a pretty big dude. I'm pretty menacing, you know? So when it comes to fighting, I've been fighting even since when I was small. I had to fight because in high school, I was extremely small. Everybody that seen me after graduation, I didn't hit my growth spurt until after I graduated. Most people hit their growth spurt before they even get into high school. I didn't hit my growth spurt until after I graduated. Um, when I graduated high school, I was five foot four and 125 pounds, technically 130, because I uh, joined the football team and put on a little weight. <laughs> so everybody that graduated with me used to call me Little Sean, you know, and now they're calling me Big Sean, <laughs> you know. But it's just like, uh, there was no fight in this thing, this thing. And, and it's not like I had like a 15 foot ladder where I could just sit there and say, hold still, let me measure you. It was like in this place, you could do things. Well, let me just say out of your body, your spirit can do things that it can't while in your body, your body is kind of like a, a buffer. It's kind of like something that it's like a dull pencil. You know what I'm saying? It keeps you from being able to do things that your spirit could normally do, like see further or hear further or, or see better. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you come out of your body, you won't need those glasses. I won't need mine. You know what I'm saying? It's just like this body dulls the experiences and the, the things that you experience out of your body are more real than what you can experience in your body. And I know that's hard for people to understand because they haven't ever experienced it. You know, those things that I experienced, but it's, it's real. It, it's, it's, and just impossible to, to explain sometimes. I mean, because there's no, it's like trying to explain sand to an Eskimo. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They've never seen it. They can't grasp it, you know? Uh, you know, and it's, uh, for me, I was just, you know, I was snatched up by this thing. And I'm just thinking to myself, I am so screwed. 
And at this point, you know, like I said, I'm, at this point, I felt hope. No love, hope, hate, all these emotions. They're just emotions. But in your spiritual form, you can feel them. Just like you can feel the breeze on your face. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, but you can feel it. You can feel these emotions like they were a physical substance. And I felt hope, which was in me, start to drain out of me. And it just felt like it was just emptying out of me. I felt it start from the top of my head and just empty out, went down through my neck, down through my legs, out through my feet. Hope, like it was water being poured out of a cup, had just literally left me. And I was numb. I didn't feel it crushing my shoulder. It still had me by the shoulder. It was still running with me, I, but I didn't feel any crushing sensation in my shoulder. I, my feet were popping. I couldn't feel it. You know, and I'm just, uh, hope just, and I just like, mm. you know, I just gave up. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is complete bull crap. I mean, I didn't, I, I never like, I thought to myself, you know, where's it taking me? And then the answer came to me. And I know that the answer was given by God. And it's just, it's not like you hear the voice of God going, he's taking you to hell. We, you know, like the voice of, you know, Charlton Heston or something like that. You know, <laughs> you know, it's not like that. It's almost like just remembering something you forgot, only you never knew. And it was like, oh, oh yeah, it's taking me to hell. Well, it's taking me to hell. And I was like, man, this is complete bull. I've, I've never, like, murdered anyone. I've been in the Marines 13, you know, 13 years, and I still never killed anyone. You know, at that, at that time, I've only been in three years. You know, did this happen? I was like, I've never murdered anyone, you know, done anything like this. Well, why am I deserving of hell? This is not right. You know, it's taking me to hell to throw me in. And another thought can do is... And after in retrospect, it's like, if that's hell, I know what hell is. I grew up in a Baptist church. Hell, I was always taught was fire and brimstone. And I ended up in this black, empty void of a place, you know, with, uh, for a twist on words, a bottomless pit. And a pit, but you can't see it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> It's like you look down and you see the, the, it just keep dropping and dropping and dropping, but you're standing on something, but you can't see it, you know? And uh, it's dragging me along and I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, okay, great. You know, it's taking me to hell that that's just freaking wonderful, you know? And I'm like, you know, this is such bull, you know? I'm like, I've, I've never done anything to deserve this. I mean, you know, if you've done those things, you deserve it, you know, but I've never done anything like that. I've never like robbed anyone or, you know, sure. I've been in plenty of fights, but nothing, nothing that, you know, you know, for sure. If there are places, this is like hell that would end you up there. You know what I'm saying? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is wrong. And then when I started thinking that, all of a sudden, a little tiny light appeared far, far away. So I lifted up my eyes. And I see this tiny little bit of light. And it's just like a tiny, tiny, itty-bitty star way, way billions of miles away off in the night sky. You know? And I look up into this blackness, and I see this tiny little star. And I think to myself, 
oh, well, whatever it is, it can't help me. I put my head back down. I'm just along for the ride now. I know where it's taking me, and I know there's nothing that can stop it. Uh, certainly, uh, I can't stop it. I mean, it would be like a two-year-old fighting Shaquille O'Neal, you know? And uh, so I put my head back down, and all of a sudden it moves to the left, and I pick my head back up, and I'm like, did it move, or did we change direction? And I, as I'm looking at it, it moved back to the right, and it gets a little bit bigger. You know, when I move the left, it got a little bit bigger. When it moves to the right, it gets a little bit bigger. And I'm like, what is that? And as I focus in on it, it comes rushing at me, this huge, blinding white light. And this uh, hand was coming out of the light, reaching down to me. And uh, in a second... And um, if you've ever played baseball, you know what uh, an autonomic reaction is. Whenever somebody throws a ball at your head and your hand knows what to do, you know, it's a, it's a reflex. It just, boom, you catch the ball. You're not thinking I'm going to reach up here and catch this ball before it hits my face. It's, you just, your body does it out of reflex. And that's what my hand did. My hand, I didn't think I'm going to reach up and grab this hand. My arm just went, whoop. And grabbed his hand that was reaching out of this white light. And uh, as soon as I touched this hand, we're all three standing back up. This thing is kind of hunched over a little bit, and it still has me by the shoulder. That's how tall this thing is, is at six foot, at six feet tall, it has to hunch over a little bit to still have a hold of my shoulder standing up and it's angry and I can feel it's anger like heat. And I know what it's thinking. It's thinking what has stopped me and why, because the way that this thing uh, pictured me was it pictured me like a stray dog. Like I had wandered into its yard. I'm a stray dog. It owns me now. It controls me. If I'm there, I deserve to be there. And now it owns me, it controls me, and there's nothing I can do about it. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So um, he uh, it whips around like this to see what had stopped it. And, of course, it knew what had stopped it. I mean, this, this light was encompassing it probably stretched out two or three hundred meters you know from where he was standing and um um this angel um was roughly about nine feet tall he had brown wavy hair pushed to the back short and um, he had on a white Roman tunic, which was embroidered in gold and cut in a V-shape in the front. It's uh, The arms came just down below the elbows, and then the, the tunic came just down uh, just below the knees. So it looked almost like, of course, Romans wore white and red. This one wore white and gold, but it was a fighting tunic. It wasn't one of those ones where you see them where it stretches all the way down to the ground and stretches all the way down to the wrists. 
you know what I'm saying? And highly important. This thing came prepared to fight, you know? And, um, um, this demon whips around and there's this angel standing there. Of course, the demon's towering over the top of the angel still. I mean, the demon, the, the angel's nine foot tall and the demon's 13 feet tall. And, um, so this angel, all I see was a flash past my eyes and that's how fast it moved. It was, it moved like lightning. It just came forward and reached his hand up and hit this demon in, in the, the solar plexus, just right below the chest. And this demon's hands, it hit him so hard that it folded in half and was flying backwards like this, and its hands were ripped off my shoulders. I mean, it didn't even have time to, like, reach down and, like, really grab a hold of me to take it with me, to take it with them. Its hands were just, like, slip, you know, just, like, Ralph right off my shoulders. It had been hit so hard and so fast that it didn't even know that it was coming. So it didn't have a chance to really grip me hard enough. It was just holding, he was holding me, but he wasn't like digging into me like he was going to pick me up again. You know what I'm saying? He was just holding me in place. And when this angel hit him, his hand was ripped from my shoulder. And he just went, beep, 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 bouncing off this ground that you can't see like a stone over water. And folded up backwards, just going bing, 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 just bouncing. And just flying backwards, getting further and further and further away and smaller. And then all of a sudden, this angel calls me by a long name. It had to be somewhere between like 15 and 18 letters. But it was my name. And he calls me by this long heavenly name. And I looked over at him and I was just like, what did he just call me? Hmm. It was like he said it but then he took it from my mind he did not allow me to remember this name that he called me but i immediately recognized it to be mine even though i've never heard it before he calls me with this long heavenly name and i look at him and he looks at me and as he's speaking it sounds like a stadium full of people or a speaker right before it's about to explode it just it's like a rushing sound like and then um like a, if a waterfall could speak and say your name, you know, like a stadium full of people saying your name all at once, like a million voices overlapped, but all moving in unison. And he spoke to me. And as he's speaking to me, he's, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie matrix where they upload Kung Fu into his brain. You know what I'm saying? They're like, Ooh, you know, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> it was like that. He was upgrading my knowledge to understand his language. He wasn't speaking English. He was upgrading my brain to understand his heavenly language. So that's what that rushing sound was. That's all, all that going into my ear was knowledge. And he was forcing this into my head. And... um and as he spoke, I could understand his words. He said, hello, my name is Michael. Of course, I, I heard it like I was hearing it in English. But he, he wasn't speaking English. He was speaking another language, but I could hear it plainly in my own language. I put it like this. If there had been 100 people 
from a hundred different countries that only spoke their own language. Man from Germany only speaking German. Man from Japan only speaking Japanese. So on and so forth. A hundred of us there. If we had all heard that rushing sound, we would have all understood him in our own language. Perfectly. He would only have been speaking one language, but we would have heard it in our own. So he... Uh, um, he said, hello, my name is Michael. And then he began to speak more, but I didn't really pay attention to what he said because, uh, and I hate to say this because it sounds cartoonish, um, but it was like a spidey sense went off in me. Uh, this thing that we call the third eye opened and I could see this demon had gotten up behind me. I could see like a little movie, like a little TV set playing inside my hand about an inch back from the center of my head, from about the center of my skin right here. If you went back one inch, there's a movie playing in my head of this thing behind me had gotten back up and it was running back after me, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, uh-oh, you know, and I could see it playing in this little TV set in my head, only it wasn't square, it was round. And I just went, uh-oh, and I turned, and when I saw it with my physical eyes, I no longer needed to see it up here, because I could see it with my physical eyes, and that, sure enough, it was like this movie that was playing matched up with this thing, so it was like this. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? This, this movie set, that was playing in my head matched up with what my physical eyes were seeing. So it, as soon as it was overlapped, I no longer needed to see it up here. I could see it right here. And I could see that, yes, it was coming back after me. It wasn't just some kind of, you know, one-off weird thing. No, this thing had, it was behind me and there was some kind of warning going off my head, kind of like, you know, that autonomic response, you know, it was a, a spiritual autonomic response going Get out of here. It's coming back after you. You flee. Run. You know? And I saw it with my physical eyes, and I, 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 he was still talking. I couldn't hear what he was saying because I was paying attention to this thing. You know, I looked back, and sure enough, it's coming back after me. And so I looked at him, and the only thing I thought to myself was, is uh, if you've come to get me out of here, please just do that. Just get me out of here. Help me. And um, he looks at me and he says, he looks at me kind of disappointed, like, dude, I handled him once. I could handle him again. You know, he looks at me kind of disappointed, like, you know, I can imagine how Jesus looked at uh, his disciples when he called them faithless. That's, that's Because that's how Michael looked at me. He looked at me and he just like, you give me this faithless look. Like, wow. I've already saved you once. You don't think I can do it again? And he says, your time has not yet come. It's time for you to go. And then he pointed his arms and then 
I just, I was too scared. The, the direction that he pointed, I stepped in that direction. I just started just immediately, like I was marching. I stepped off in that direction. And as soon as my foot hit the ground, I'm back in my body. And these two knuckleheads are still standing over the top of me going, you know, oh, God, what are we going to do? Another one's like, you know, just shut up, shut up. I got this. You know, just give me time to think. And my eyes are open. And all of a sudden, he looks down and he sees me with my eyes open. And he goes, hey, his eyes are open. And the other one gets over the top of me and he's like, he's like, hey, do you see me? Do you see me? And I can't move a thing. The only thing I can move is my eyeballs. Every bit of me is asleep. It's paralyzed because there had been no blood flow in my body for several minutes. So my whole body's asleep. I mean, all of it. And if you've ever gotten those pinpricks, whenever the blood starts flowing, imagine that <laughs> times a thousand, because it, it had to run through my whole body. I mean, my whole body felt those pinpricks as the blood began flowing. And even after I got my first, the upper half of my body working again, uh, it still took me another 20 minutes to get the lower half of my body. My, my upper half of my body wanted to go, but my lower half of my body just was still dead asleep. I literally tried to stand up and fell onto the ground. And then I was like, I'm not going to end like this. I'm not going to end up in a wheelchair. So I, I forced my legs to move. And uh, it was like my legs were doing scissor kicks, you know, until the blood came back into my legs, you know, because I was, I was forcing them to move. But it was I was like only trying to move an inch and they were like punting a field goal. You know, I'm thinking, I'm going to move this leg one inch and woof. I'm going to move this one one inch and woof. You know, and I'm doing like this, just on the ground, kicking up a dust storm for about five minutes before the my legs felt these pen picks of fire and then just went dead. Like, dead battery, dead battery, dead battery. You know, and it took me, as I said, at least another five minutes to roll over, get on my knees like a little child get up to a standing position and I was standing like an old man until I was able to stand fully erect. And after about 20, 25 minutes, cause I kept going like this to him, like this. And they were like, why don't you say anything? I went and I opened up my mouth and they could see that my tongue was like this. My tongue was in, engorged with blood and it had filled up the entirety of my mouth. I was breathing through my nose. I couldn't breathe through my mouth. It was like having an orange in your mouth. Only the orange is your tongue. Okay. So I was only able to breathe through my nose and I was just barely breathing. I was struggling to breathe. And um, so I just kept looking at him pissed off doing this. Like, like, Wait. And they're like, why don't you say anything to us? And I'm like, ah, you know, and they saw my tongue and they're like, oh, crap, you know. And so I just walked in circles for about another 20 minutes. And finally, one of them comes over there and he says, you know, because they, when they were standing over top of me, they're trying to give me you know, like uh, sobriety questions. Like, do you know who, do you know who you are? Do you know who I am? Do you know where you are? Do you know what year it is? They're trying to give me sobriety questions. And then finally, you know, I kept doing like this, like, wait, you know, and, you know, I showed up my tongue and 
uh, another 20 minutes passed, and he finally comes over there, and he goes, he goes, I am a corporal in the Marine Corps. You are a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps, and you will do what I tell you to do. Is your tongue down small enough to where you can answer me? And I open my mouth, and I'm like, and it's like twice the size it is now. But it sounded like I had just come out of the dentist's office, but it had come down to about half its size, which is now it was swollen up about four times the size of a normal tongue. And it come down, and it sounded like I had just come out of the dentist's office because, I mean, just – I still haven't get, regained full use of my tongue yet. And I was like, Les, I know who you are. I know where I am. I know where I'm at. I know what year it is. Now, could you just piss off for a minute? You know, he's like, okay, fine, fine. Because he, he knew that he was in trouble if I decided to press it. You know, so I walked around for about another 20 minutes, hour had passed. And then finally, I just went over there and I said, you know, after I fully remembered who everybody's names was, like I said, I'm terrible with names. And if something traumatic happens, I tend to forget things like numbers and dates and times and places. But I said, you're a couple Jason Laycock. You're a couple Tubby Page. I said, we're at CAX 3-94. We're in California in the middle of 29 Palms in a small place called Camp Wilson. And he looks at me and goes, dude, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. But the truth is, it's not really. <laughs> I mean, when, I mean it's, it's like living through a train wreck. Not, not a car wreck, a train wreck. You know, something really super dramatic, super crazy. And you just live through it. You know what I'm saying? It's like you just go through it. And everybody's like, how did you walk out of that wreckage alive without a scratch? You know, you mentioned that the angel's name was Michael. Are you saying that it was Archangel Michael? Yeah, absolutely. He didn't have to introduce himself as that name. Once you looked at him and you heard the word Michael, you immediately knew that it was the Archangel Michael. Absolutely. I mean, you didn't, you had no questions in your brain whatsoever. Is this the Archangel? No. When you looked at him, you were like in awe of him, Hmm. you know, because his, just to describe him, I described the demon. Let me describe him for you. He, besides just having blue eyes, his eyes were a perfect blue. I mean, if you could dip a cup of blue out of the ocean and put it in someone's eyes, I mean, they had no stress in them. They were just perfectly blue, like like water. And his skin was like an olive color, like a tan color. But the whiteness coming from inside him was so bright that it almost overshadowed his skin color. Um, And I know now why when you read the old text, they call them beautiful. Because on the outside, their bodily form is absolutely male. They even had the little dimple in the chin. So that you can see he was male. He had the cheekbones of a male. But on the inside of his face, like overlapped with him, was the... I mean, he was androgynous. He was like a man mixed with a woman, but not like it's Pat. Like, is that a man or a woman? No, it was definitely a man, but there was a spirit within him that you could see would push forward out of his face that was woman. Hmm. And I'm not talking about like, 
I'm talking about the most gorgeous woman that you've probably ever seen mixed with the most handsome man that you've ever seen so that you can tell that it's a man. But every once in a while, you would see those womanly features push forward out of his face like there was a woman trapped inside of him. Hmm. And just gorgeous, beautiful. And I don't mean gorgeous like, woohoo, let's have a good time. No, I mean gorgeous like a rainbow or waterfall or something like that. I mean, just beautiful. When they describe them as beautiful, they are beautiful. They're, and I know that's weird, a man looking at another man going, wow, he's beautiful. You know, <laughs> but it is what it is. I mean, I've never looked at another human male and go, wow, he's beautiful. I, I look at maybe another man, at least give him his props and say, maybe he's handsome, you know, but I would never describe a man as beautiful. I mean, in the English vernacular, it just doesn't allow for that, <laughs> you know? How do you think it, you changed spiritually or personality wise after this experience? Um, well, it set my feet on a journey and, um, it set my feet on a journey for truth, you know, because like I said, in, in a Baptist church, I was always taught that hell is fire and brimstone. And it's only that you don't, you aren't really taught much about demons. You aren't taught much about angels. I mean, or heaven or hell. I mean, you're just taught that Jesus saves and that's all you need to know, you know, and as far as the rest of it goes, it's all untapped territory. So I began my search on that. Uh, and uh, of course, um, using the scriptures, obviously, as a base for what I believe in me, because if Jesus saves, then, then that's it for me. You know what I'm saying? So I, I went and I looked at every other religion. And I'm talking about the old ancient religions. And I found a lot of what I saw mixed in with these old religions, you know? Uh, but I'm not even talking about Greek and Nor Norse, you know what I'm saying? Norwegians, you know, their gods. I studied the, those gods. I studied the ancient Egyptian gods. I studied all these and I saw how they overlapped even some of the names and some of the places and some of the, you know, you know, some of the things, the, the majority of these things overlap. So that to me, that, that tells me there's a, a little bit of truth and a lot of lie, you know, a lot of embellishment, you know, but I'm, I'm able to pick out the, the truth from the lie, you know, and tell what's embellished, what's not. And um, how can I put this? I know now that I have been chosen to speak on behalf of the dead. And I'm not talking about like a, a medium or, you know, a witch or anything like that. I'm, I have been chosen to speak on uh, salvation for the dead. What happened to the dead before Jesus came? That's what I've been chosen to do. That's my mission that I still have left here. And I've already figured it out. And if I told you, it would just blow your mind. Because the things that I had to tell you, you've never heard before from any preacher. And you probably never will hear from any other person. Like, I can tell you what happened, 
to the souls of the men that died before Jesus came. I can tell you what happened to the Garden of Eden, why no one's ever found it. All right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, and if I told you, it would just, would you like to hear it? Yeah. I mean, do we have time? I have about 12 minutes. So whatever you can give me. In 12 time. minutes? Okay, yeah. I'll give it to you. All right. Okay. Um, now, this is this part's going to blow your mind. This is what set it all off. Um, Jesus was hanging on the cross, and there's a thief to his left and a thief to his right. One of the thieves looks at him and says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So first of all, he's recognizing that Jesus is a king, and obviously they're on a cross. That kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. He's recognizing him as a spiritual king. So he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus tells him the name of his kingdom. He says, you will be with me in paradise today. Most people automatically assume that paradise is heaven, but not so. The reason why it cannot be is because if we say paradise is heaven, then we're calling Jesus a liar. Because three days later, after his body had been laid in that tomb and they unsealed it three days later, Mary Magdalene meets him and she falls down to worship him and is holding him by the feet. And basically, I'm ad-libbing here, but he says, Mary, you have to let me go because I have not yet ascended to my father. We know from the prayer of John that the father's kingdom is heaven. Okay, so if the father's kingdom is heaven, he's telling him, one, you'll be with me in heaven today. And he's telling the other one, I haven't gone yet. What is that? That's a problem to any preacher that I present it to. You see what I'm saying? Unless paradise is not heaven, unless they're two separate heavenly kingdoms. And they are. Okay? But to, to, to help you understand what paradise is, you have to back, go back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was two trees that had great significance. One, which was the tree of life, and the other one, which was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm sure you've heard these things before. But I'm just going to connect it all together like dots that form a picture once you connect them all together. In Revelation 2, 7, it says this, for he who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, I'm about to tell you a mystery. If you're not paying attention, it'll go right over your head. For he who has an ear, let him hear. For he who overcomes, in other words, overcomes the world, shall be given to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of and you would expect him to say the Garden of Eden or the Garden of God. But instead of saying the Garden of God, he says the paradise of God. Hmm, paradise. Where have I heard that word before? On the cross. The paradise of God is the Garden of Eden. And just like any good father, if you want to know if you can trust your 10-year-old with a gun, you unload it, you lay it out in the open, and you tell him, don't touch it. And then you put a point of camera at it, motion-activated camera, and then when he goes and touches it, you can sit there and say, no, son, I don't believe your lie. You did touch it. Here's the video. And then you show him touching it, playing with it, and click, 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 click. No, I can't trust you with this. If I can't trust you with an empty gun, I can't trust you with a loaded gun. So what do you do as a good father? You move it out of the way where he can't touch it. And that's exactly what God did with the Garden of Eden. He took the Garden of Eden, and he moved it where a man couldn't touch it. But to justify that... We know as Christians or even as a believer in Jesus that there is a place called hell. At least most of us believe that. And um, this place called hell 
was made as a cursed place specifically for the cursed one. In the Garden of Eden, that dragon who tricked Eve into eating the fruit, most people say serpent, but at that time it was not a serpent, it was a dragon. It had legs because God cursed it. He cursed it to crawl on his belly. If you're already crawling on your belly, it's not a curse. That would be like looking at me and say, I curse you to be six foot one with green eyes and blonde hair. I'm already that. How is that a curse? You know what I'm saying? But he said, I'm going to curse you from this day forward to crawl on your belly. And you're going to be at enmity with mankind from this point forward. In other words, an enemy to them. But he cursed the dragon directly. Now, when he looks at man, he doesn't say cursed are you man. He says curse is the ground for your sake. But where was man whenever... He cursed the ground. He was in the Garden of Eden. So he took this cursed place of Eden, kicks man out of it, and says, go onto the face of the earth. And you know that Eden was on the face of the earth because there was four rivers there. Two of those rivers still exist today in modern-day Iran, Iraq. If you want to know about where it's at, you don't get the bullseye. You only get one part. You know, the two rivers that still exist still running in the same direction, probably the ones that were run in the same direction as the flood that flooded the earth. Most people think that the flood wiped the, you know, Eden out. It didn't. It was moved before the flood. But those two rivers that were running sideways just got filled in to the flood. Here comes the flood. They filled them in. Gone. Two rivers gone at Matley. The other ones got just got deeper. But those were are still on the face of the earth. Why did I say the face of the earth? Because it was moved right next to hell. In the old Jewish text, there's a place called Sheol, which is a deep, dark cavern in the heart of the earth or the center of the earth. So those people that keep saying hollow earth, they have something going there. I don't know how true all of it is, but there is something true going on there because Sheol exists. Okay. And in Sheol, inside this dark cavern, you have a cursed place called Hades. And then God moved Eden right beside it because he had cursed it. You see what I'm saying? So you had two cursed places side by side. And the chapter of Luke, Jesus tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus, who was a poor beggar laid at his gate about to die. The rich man had no mercy on Lazarus in life. Wouldn't even feed him the scraps off his table because he's probably looking at him going, man, this guy's only got a couple of days left. And man, he's in rough shape. And why waste food? I'm going to feed the scraps to my dog. I'm not going to even feed him the scraps because he's going to just kick the bucket anyway. And I'm not going to waste. But they both died on the same day. The, the story that Jesus is telling, he says that the rich man ends up being burned up in the flames. But it says that the rich man, while being burned up in the flames, raises his eyes and he sees Abraham. Excuse me. Abraham? Abraham was the one given the promise by God to inherit the city of God, if you read Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 says that Abraham left his house and his land and his home all by faith to go live in tents out in the desert because God, he was promised to inherit a city that was made, those foundation and maker was God himself. In other words, he was promised heaven, only he didn't realize that heaven was never on earth. The city of gold that he went out into the desert looking for was never on earth. So there was 41 generations from Abraham all the way up to Joseph, who was the stepfather of, of Jesus, who looked for the city of gold and never found it. It was like a running joke. 
You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So here they are looking for the city. They never find it. I'm sure Abraham asked every generation came down. Hey, find it yet? Find it yet? Nope, not yet. Okay. But if you also read Ezekiel 31, 16, it says that the Pharaoh was cast down, just like this rich man was cast down in Jesus' day. The Pharaoh was cast down in the days of in the days of uh, um, Moses. It says that he cast the Pharaoh down into Hades, down into the pit, so hard that it shook the neighboring trees, and it has a coal in there, and it's in all in the same verse, thirty-one sixteen. Only one verse. He said it shook the trees and the nations. When when God speaks of the nations, He's speaking of the twelve nations that were begat from Abraham. Abraham beget Isaac. Isaac beget Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 nations of Israel. So when God says it shook the nations, all of those nations, all those people that were down there, the nations were shaken. It wasn't talking about on the face of it. It wasn't talking about Germany and Israel and Spain and the United States. It was talking about that. It was talking about the Garden of Eden, because it says that the trees of Lebanon, which were uh, beautiful to look upon, and good to eat from, and those who are being comforted in, in the in the neither parts of the earth, those who are being comforted, there's no comfort in hell. And when you read about Jesus talking about the Lazarus, he says that he was being taken to a place called Abraham's bosom where he, by the angels where he was comforted because in life he suffered. And that's what Father Abraham responded to the to the rich man. He says, look, In life, you had everything you ever wanted, and you showed no compassion on this man. And even if he had compassion on you now to dip his finger and put a drop on your tongue, you can't. Because he can't cross over to where you are, and you can't cross over to where we are, because we're in two separate places with a fixed gulf in between us. Hmm. So there's two places side by side, the righteous on one side and the unrighteous on the other. So you got the don't think that, the, that that guy went down there by himself. He was carried by the demons into that place. And don't think that these righteous made it into that place by themselves. There was an angel placed there after mankind was kicked out and told him, don't let them back in alive. If you wanted into this place, you had to be in by the angels. The angels had to carry you into this place for you to be allowed in. Okay? So... You had the righteous on one side and the unrighteous, and they were side by side of hills down instead of the earth. And this, and this Ezekiel 31, 16 saying that this place where this Eden is also down in the center of the earth, then that's what God did. God moved it off the face of the earth into the center of the earth. Okay, but now here's the thing. The reason why they never were allowed into heaven and couldn't be is because of what Jesus said to um to a Jewish priest, he looks at him and he says, he says, what are you teaching in Israel? Don't you know for a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven that he must be changed? He must be born again. He must be made into a new creation. But what does that happen? It happens through baptism. It happens through being born of the water and born of the spirit. But what is being born of the water and born of the spirit a symbolism of? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That hadn't happened yet. So all of these people who were waiting down in the center of the earth could not go into heaven because they hadn't been changed yet to receive, be received into heaven. And heaven itself still needed to be changed because he said, Jesus says this to his apostles. The day before he says, 
and my father's house are many mansions. In other words, the kingdom of heaven, you've been waiting 41 generations, 42, including me. But you know what? The heaven is real. That's what that means. It doesn't mean there's many rooms and many mansions. Those mansions that were there were for the angels who were already inhabiting the city of God. The city of God was a city of light built on the clouds. Man can't stand on the clouds. The angels can. The angels can walk on clouds like it's terra firma, like it's hard ground. But man needs hard ground to stand on. So heaven wasn't ready for mankind yet. And man wasn't ready for heaven yet. That's why when Jesus left, when he ascended 40 days after he resurrected from the tomb, he carries the whole place with them. He doesn't just carry the men and the angels with them. He ascends into the clouds. But what's in those clouds? If you could see those clouds from above, you wouldn't say, hey, they're just clouds. No, you would have seen that the whole place of paradise, which he had stuck down in the center of the earth, he took it with them. He took all the men and the angels on this terra firma, and then he uses paradise or the Garden of Eden or Abraham's bosom, whatever you want to call it, three places, I mean, three different names for the same place. He takes paradise and then he uses it as a foundation to fulfill his word in Hebrews 11, whose foundation and maker is God. God made the specifically the Garden of Eden for mankind. So he takes it into heaven and he uses it as a foundation to put the city on. So now you have clouds, firm ground, city of God. Before it was just clouds, city of God. But it had to be made new. Why? One, because man wasn't ready for it yet. And two, because the devil had already walked in there and took a third of the angels out of heaven with them. So it had to be changed. The same way that they put blood on the lentils or on the doorsteps, uh, door, the doorposts, in Egypt to keep the, 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 the angel of death out. You know who the angel of death is. Everybody knows who it is. It's not Jesus. It's the devil. They keep the devil out. The same thing was done with Jesus' blood. They put it on the doorsteps. They put it on the door frame so that the devil can't enter back in. So now the only ones who can enter into the new Jerusalem or the new heaven are those who have had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So... He takes it up there, and he, like I said, he uses the earth or this piece of the earth. So when you read Revelation 21, it says, and behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That new earth is the piece of ground that he took with him, because on day three, when God creates dry land, before that, it was covered with water. He says this, he says, I call dry land to appear, and I call this dry land earth. So when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, it's not talking about the planet. It's talking about the piece of ground that God specifically made for man, which was the Garden of Eden, the perfected piece. And then in Revelation 22, it says this, from the throne of God, and the throne of God is in heaven, it's not on earth, never has been. It's in the city of God, which has never been on the earth. It says, from the throne of God flows a crystalline river, and on each side of the river, the tree of life. Ooh, stop there. When did a city get inside of Eden? The tree of life is only in Eden. It's only in paradise. It's only in Abraham's bosom. Since when was there a city built in Eden? Man didn't make it into heaven because he needed to be changed. And vice versa, heaven needed to be changed for man to enter into it. So upon the resurrection was the first time that Abraham got to receive the promise, which he was promised, which 42 generations looked for and never saw it. From what I'm understanding, the Garden of Eden was moved up into the clouds 
and it's the foundation for heaven now, right? Yes. Yes, and so it's not here anymore. No, it's not on the earth. It's not in the earth. Right. All right, Sean, I'm sorry I have to finish this up with you, but I really appreciate you. No I wish you the best. Thank you so much for being my guest, and uh, have a great evening. Hey, bro, it was my pleasure. All right, take care. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara Podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.